This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. The virus clearly uh, continues to be front of mind, and yet I feel like we're looking at it maybe in a more complicated way, in a more complex way, not in a bad way, uh, candidly, Carol. And this next guest has always kept us honest when we've talked yes. to, to him about some of the demographic, the socioeconomic elements of this that we cannot forget. Right. And I feel like it's been exacerbated or reminded even more because of the last couple of weeks. Um, the black community, right, again, impacted disproportionately um, when it comes to certainly the virus. We saw that and then equality and justice. So perfect voice for us on this Monday. Uh, welcome back, Dr. Sandro Galea. He's dean and professor at Boston University School of Public um, Health, and he's author of Pained Uncomfortable Conversations About Uh, the public's health. Uh, Conversations, though, that need to be had. He joins us once again on the phone from Boston. Dr. Galea, uh, nice to have you back with us. Um, I do wonder, both Jason and I do, wonder how your thinking has continued to evolve because of what's happened, not only in the past 13 weeks because of the virus, we've talked to you about that, but then what's happened in the past two weeks, what we've seen out of Minneapolis. Yeah, first of all, thank you for having me always. I think what we're seeing coming out of Minneapolis is an expression of uh, justifiable, entirely understandable anger and frustration with decades and centuries-long injustices. And that, I think, is reflected in the protests we have seen around police, around policing and around systemic racism. Now, when you think about that, one question you might ask, well, what does it have to do with COVID? What does it have to do with the moment we've been living through? But I would argue that these underlying structural forces that divide us, that divide us on racial ethnic lines, that divide us on social class lines, also are the story of COVID. COVID was a virus that, uh, you know, early on said, well, the virus affects everybody. Sure it does, but it doesn't affect everybody equally. We know now that the greater burden of COVID infections disproportionately falls on minorities, on uh, people of color. We know that uh, among those who are infected, the greater proportion of death, the greater likelihood of death falls on people of color and people who are socioeconomically marginalized. And that reflects this underlying division that shapes and colors our society. And those are really the same forces that we are now seeing flare up in uh, in this anger that emerged, obviously, from the George Floyd killing and the other killings around it. So we do have here commonalities. We have essentially a pandemic, unemployment, civil unrest, all of which is reflecting underlying deep racial and socioeconomic divides. And so, Dr. Galea, how do we go about solving this structurally from a health perspective? Because all of these things, and I think you've pointed this out to us before, rightly, are all intertwined, whether it's health, education, transportation, housing, all of it is tied together. But just taking health and, and your specialty and, and public health specifically, what are the ways that, that maybe we can be thinking about uh, to start to change the structure of this? 
Yeah, I think uh, it's a, I think it's a great question, Jason. I think it's an it's a natural question, and I suppose I would invert the question because mm-hmm. I do I do not think you can treat this just as a health problem. Interesting. I think that health is ineluctably linked with housing, with fair, fair wages, with gender equity, with clean air, drinkable water, with the way we structure our society overall. And this is why health and social justice are so inextricably intertwined, because there is no solution that focuses only on health. If we focus only on health, what ends up happening is we end up burrowing and burrowing more, ever more deeply in spending money on healthcare. And of course, spending money on healthcare, as, as you know, as the listeners know, is treating disease after people are already sick. Right. But of course, people are getting sick to begin with because of these underlying issues. And let's take let's take one concrete example. Let's take the economic collapse that has happened after COVID. We all we all know this. You talk about it quite a bit in your show. But of course, the economic collapse has been uneven. I mean, 36 million jobs have been lost so far and 40% were held of the jobs lost were held by people who already had an annual household income of below 40,000. The unemployment rate among whites is 14%, among blacks 17%, among Latinx populations 19%. So what we're seeing here is even in something like this, which is an economic collapse, which is widespread, which you report correctly has been widespread, is furthering these divides. And these are the social divides that are going to become health divides. So let's take for a second, let's, let's assume, let's agree that unemployment results in bad health. That's, that's not a controversial, that's not a controversial right. statement, right? So I'm telling you unemployment results in bad health. I'm also telling you that unemployment is disproportionate among people who are already poorer than people who are richer. So it doesn't take uh, sort of too many logical steps to realize that that means that people who are poorer are going to get sicker, people who are richer are going to get healthier. Now, if we focused on that as a strictly health problem, we are going to be throwing money at healthcare to help fix people who have gotten sick. Well, the problem, the reason they got sick to begin with, is because they were already economically marginalized and because they became unemployed in a time of COVID. So when you see it that way, the two are inextricable. And I think a health agenda has to include an economic agenda. I totally agree. God, we were talking about this a lot over the weekend about what it Mm. is to those that are more vulnerable and economically disadvantaged. What do we need to do to really make a difference. Our guest at this hour is Dr. Sandro Galea. He is Dean and Professor at Boston University School of Public Health, author of Pained Uncomfortable Conversations about the Public's Health. Uh, Dr. Galea, one thing I want to ask you, since we, you know, we know so much is interconnected uh, in terms of, you know, really determining what kind of life an individual in America has. So what do you think is the most important, difficult conversation that we have to have at this point? Is it Overhousing? Is it transportation? Is it wages? Is it taxation? Is it health? What's the one that we need to have to kind of make a difference to the less fortunate populations? And specifically, since we've talked about it a lot over the last couple of uh, weeks and certainly the last 13 weeks, the black population. Yeah, Carl, I, I think that's a, that's a terrific question and one I'm asked all the time. And is it a conversation about making sure everybody has access to quality early childhood education? Is it a conversation about fair wages and increasing minimum wage? Is it a conversation about affordable housing, about ensuring that everybody has food, about narrowing wealth gaps, about reducing violence, about groups, LGBT groups? And the answer is, I don't think that any of these are important than others. I actually think the hardest conversation is the one we're having now, which is to say, that all of these conversations are important. You know, which of these conversations become policy solutions 
depends as much on the conversation as it does on the pragmatics of the moment as to on what is possible in what jurisdiction. So as far as I'm concerned, if there is one thing that we should do, it's to change the conversation and to say that all of these are forces that we should discuss in the same breath as we discuss health. And when you think about COVID, and I ask myself, you know, what shall we look back on COVID in 10 years' time? What's the conversation that we should remember? What I'd like us to remember is that COVID taught us that you cannot have a healthy country without better education, transportation, wages, housing, food, narrowing wealth gaps, reducing violence, better integration of marginalized groups, because all of those forces we have seen play out in creating the COVID pandemic that we've lived through. So if we learn from that, if we learn from that, we will tackle them and tackle them now. And, you know, I do wonder, Dr. Galea, part of this is educating maybe the next generation, whether it's the next generation of doctors or just the next generation writ large, in sort of a different way or to think in a different way. And that seems to be coming up repeatedly. And I think many of us are buoyed by the fact that a lot of the people protesting peacefully are of many different races and and colors Mm -hmm. and backgrounds. Um, I do wonder what the conversations are that you're having with your students and how they might be different from a previous generation. Yeah, I I, I like you. I'm uh, by, uh, by thinking about the next generation. One of the privileges of being a dean of a school is I'm surrounded by the next generation. I, uh, all of these conversations are happening with our students, but perhaps most importantly, our students are leading the conversations because I actually think that uh, the uh, generation that is um, up and coming that will be in charge of the world in the next 20 years has some pretty interesting ideas. And I don't think all of those ideas work. I think some I agree with, some I disagree with. But I think it's... Um, it's a tremendously important moment in time to allow ideas to fight space so that we can shift forward, which ones we can adopt, and to use, I think, something Carol said before the break, how we can make sure we actually implement the transformations we need yeah. to implement without and making sure that people are not hurt in the process. And, and, that, and that, of course, is critical. So I've been, I've been enjoying listening and learning from uh, the ideas emerging from uh, the next generation. And, of course, it, it's immensely hopeful to think that uh, some of these concepts that the three of us are discussing, they're sort of second nature to the generation that's right. uh, up and coming. Right. And, and that will make the world a better place. I, I was thinking about, I know, Jason, you do this at your home with your teenagers and my teenager too. Like the way they talk about this and approach it may, gives me hope, I have to say, in terms of totally, you know, the possibility of, of making a difference and looking at it in a different way. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Sandro uh, Galeo. Uh, Galea. He is Dean and Professor at Boston University School of Public Health, uh, author of Pained, Uncomfortable Conversations about the Public's Health. And he's so patient because every time I say his name, I seem to just mess it up. And he's just such a gem. <laughs> New in different ways. I know. <laughs> I feel so terrible because I he's one of my favorite voices to talk to because he, I feel like he looks at the world. It's not just healthcare, but it's taking everything into account. And how do you make a difference? Maybe in all of our show calls, we'll just say, all right, Let's say it again, Sandro Galea. Sandro Galea. <laughs> I think it's Sandro Galea. Sandro Galea. <laughs> You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. One of the issues that we have been looking at so closely, uh, Carol, is mm-hmm. what happens next and how we got here. And this story from the magazine last week, I think, is a really important, and I'm really glad uh, Joel Weber and I were talking about this earlier, that we're getting a chance to talk about it. Claire Suddeth wrote it, uh, and the story has a very simple headline. 
America's safety net is failing its workers. Claire joins us on the phone from Brooklyn. Joel Weber is also with us, the aforementioned Joel Weber. He is the editor, of course, of Bloomberg Business Week. So, Joel, help us understand how this fits into what was clearly a broader theme in the magazine, in the most uh, recent issue of the magazine. So, Claire actually started working on this story basically right at the very beginning of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And I think she really, uh, she's just like one of the most gifted storytellers I think we have. And really, I think she was like a laser on putting, um, uh, the, you know, the spotlight on, on workers. And one after the next that she talked to, uh, she was just getting amazing stuff about them basically realizing how there was no more safety net in this country because it's basically just been eroded over time. So when something like the pandemic hits, everything is overwhelmed. And as a result, the labor market just goes upside down. And frankly, even despite Friday being what those numbers were, it still feels like we still don't understand entirely what's going on. And I think Claire's reporting to me of everything I've read so far was the one that just made me really understand it on a more human level. Uh, Claire, what did you, how did you find these people and, and what did you hear from them? Um, that is a great question. I found them a number of ways. Um, I mean, part of this is this whole story, given the pandemic, had to be reported remotely. Um, so normally I try to go out and talk to people, but here I basically utilize the Internet. I, put out a call on pretty much all social media that I could. And then I also just reached out to random small business owners. Um, I read something small in the paper about um, Cheesecake Factory employees being furloughed and that they had formed this Facebook group. So I talked my way into the Facebook group and ended up talking to all these Cheesecake Factory employees. So there's an anecdote about them in there. Um, And it was just a lot of I would refer to it as on-the-ground reporting, except it's more like on-the-internet reporting. Um, (laughs) On the Zoom reporting. (laughs) Yeah. And I tried to talk to people all over the country. So there are people from, you know, Virginia to Chicago to California to Montana to New Mexico to Texas in the story um, to paint a pretty wide picture of what it looks like across America as a whole. What did did you learn? Uh, I learned, so I, I did, I started reporting this before the CARES Act passed. Um, so the thing that struck me first as people were getting laid off during the shutdown, the initial couple of first weeks in March, was that um, given the past work that I have done on stuff similar to this, I just knew that there wasn't anything available for a lot of people. And many people have extreme debt um, or their health care is tied to their jobs or they don't have health care at all. And so I wanted to see what this looks like when you suddenly are laid off of work um, with no opportunity really to get another job. I think what was different with this pandemic is if you're laid off in a recession, it sucks and it's terrible, but you can look for other jobs. But if you're you're a restaurant worker and your restaurant closes, you can't go to another restaurant. So you had to sit tight. Um, And so I watched as these people went from having um, no safety net whatsoever, the very first people in this story happened to be working. They were freelance workers, and they happened to be working the first sporting event in the U.S. that was shut down um, on March 8th, and they had nothing. They had um, they paid for their own health insurance. They didn't have, you know, any unemployment. They didn't qualify. The CARES Act later changed that, but it took them a month plus to actually get, uh, you know, through the unemployment system, which is 
you know, it has its own issues. And so I started talking to them before they could even apply for unemployment and thought they had to do this all on their own. And then this act gets passed and then they feel better. And then it turns out that they have to wait for their unemployment and then it's not what they thought it was going to be. You know, one of them didn't even get anything until just a couple of weeks ago um, and they have been laid off since March. So that's basically the story of why we didn't have this set up in the first place and then um, what uh, a cluster mess it is to try to build a safety net in the middle of a pandemic. Right. Well, you know, what's first of all, I love that you tell the personal stories because I feel like sometimes we, we talk from that big perspective, the big broad numbers, but when you really hear about, you know, the struggles that so many Americans are going through as a result of this, it's really very telling. The thing is, what's interesting, Claire, too, about your story is the destruction of the middle class, right? You know, we see people pointing like, you've got to have a safety net, but how can you have a safety net when we've really destroyed, I feel like, that opportunity for so many Americans? Yeah, you know, I talk to people at in all different levels of um, what I would, I guess, refer to as, you know, economic and financial security. And, um, you know, there's a woman in the story who was a senior marketing manager at Airbnb. Like, she made good money. She worked for a big company. Um, she's getting severance through um, July. Um, but the thing is that she lives in the Bay Area, and she had, you know, had, I think it was about $45,000 in personal debt. And she can't afford to stay in the Bay Area if she can't find another job. And she's not sure that she's going to be able to do that before her severance ends, um, which is, you know, she's like maybe a month to go before, Mm -hmm. you know, and she doesn't have a job. And so her option is essentially she's 40 years old and she's originally from New Jersey. And so she said, I'm just going to move home to New Jersey and live with my mom. Um, And this is a woman who's, you know, well advanced in her career is doing well in all other respects, but um, just the nature of life and how expensive it is, the middle class, I talked to several economists who study this and study wealth disparity, and one of the things um, um, Edward Wolf at NYU mentioned that he's been studying this for so long. In the 1980s, your average middle class family had enough financial reserves and savings to get through two to three months of just sort of normal consumption if they hold tight, if they lose their jobs. And now it's a little bit over a week, which is nothing. Yeah, Yeah. that's really remarkable. Well, uh, it is a must-read for sure. It was one of the most read uh, when it published last week, and certainly this whole issue of the magazine is one to really sit with and Mm -hmm. kind of take it in because I think we all need that gut check and that reality check about what the statistics, the data, and the personal stories, and you pointed that out, Carol, really show. But I also think of the conversation we have with Dr. Galea, right, about all of this so interconnected, right? And we've got to, if we're going to solve some of these problems, folks, we have to look at all of it. Education, housing, wages, so much. So our thanks to Claire Suddeth. Check out that story in the magazine. Of course, our thanks always to Bloomberg Businessweek editor, Joel Weber. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right, you are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. It is Monday. I'm Carol Masser along with my co-host Jason Kelly. So, Jason, we call you Kermit the Frog. (laughs) It is so true. So wavy. My family has another description of it too at here at home, but we'll talk about that later. Um, 
Jason, let's not forget, we've got a Fed meeting this Wednesday. So it's going to be very interesting if you think about Friday's jobs report. I am so curious what the Fed has to say. In today's Business Week Economics, I'm so delighted to have back with us Stephen Skanke. He's Chief Economic Advisor at Keel Point, former U.S. Treasury, uh, uh, um, U.S. former Sorry, former U.S. Treasury and White House National Security Council staff member. It's terrible when I can't even read my own notes. Based in Washington, D.C., he's on the phone in the nation's capital. Um, Stephen, so great to have you back with us. Um, So much going on as well. And I do wonder, first of all, how is your world? Well, thanks, uh, Carol. Always great to be with you and Jason. Uh, our, our world is uh, increasingly complicated uh, mm. just because there's so much going on all the time. But I'd say generally, well, we feel good about what we're seeing and about how markets are responding. Uh, some of it is, uh, is a little bit hard to fathom when markets are up on days that we have uh, negative news. Mm-hmm. But clearly, they've, uh, they've learned to look forward to what's coming and not what's in the rearview mirror. Yeah, I mean, it is sort of remarkable to to see this and to continue to try and synthesize sort of Wall Street, Main Street data, market sentiment and all that. So, Stephen, if you're sitting at the Fed, you know, sitting around that virtu- that Zoom meeting with uh which I assume is how they're doing everything like we all are, um with Jay Pollock What's the tone of the meeting? What are you looking at more acutely or more specifically? And and how does the conversation go? They certainly have to be uh, happy with how things are developing and how what they've done already, Mm -hmm. which was uh, uh, proactive, preemptive uh, uh, and and done very effectively. They've got to be very satisfied with that, uh, notwithstanding uh, uh, the other things that are going on in the economy and in public health. Uh, but they've really done their part and they've done it well. Uh, so so as they see where they've they've made sure that there's enough liquidity, they've backstopped critical credit markets, uh, they've done what they can on easing monetary policy and buying longer-term assets. Uh, and so now it's to figure out uh, where the fine-tuning has to happen. You know, so far, of their 11 uh, emergency credit facilities, they've only implemented uh, three of them. Uh, It looks like they're getting ready to roll out Main Street lending, uh, which can have a huge impact. Uh, Its its potential is up to uh, uh, $850 and uh, that'll be significant when that gets rolling. So, so they're they're looking at uh, what needs to be done next and what fine tuning needs to be done with what they've done already. So fine-tuning, what I'm curious, and you understand, um, Steve, how it all works, right? Having, you know, worked at the Treasury, you understand um, the workings of all of this. How does something like the last two weeks fit into potentially a Fed discussion? I bring it up because Alan Greenspan used to talk a lot about the broader society and inequalities and so on and so forth and, and just kind of looking at things. So I just do wonder, does the Fed think about policy and how it either helps or hurts kind of some of the gaps that are in our society? They think about it a lot uh, Mm. and uh, pay good attention to it. Uh, uh, The Fed is the one that generates uh, income and wealth disparity numbers uh, to make sure that uh, it's well distributed uh, publicly and that policymakers are aware of it. And they they do it in a very... uh, 
apolitical, uh, uh, almost mm-hmm. academic way. Mm-hmm. So the data is trustworthy, it's transparent, it's widely circulated, they talk about it. Uh, nothing, is, uh, uh, nothing is sort of kept in the background. And because it comes from the Fed, uh, it, it's right there with the highest level of credibility. Uh, Jay Powell has also been very proactive, uh, as you've probably heard him say, mm-hmm. being out in town meetings and, and meeting with minority communities and, and those parts of our society that have, uh, have not done as well over time as some of the others. Uh, and they were very pleased uh, to see uh, historic progress made in, in income levels uh, with, with some of the historically uh, less privileged minority areas. Uh, and, and, of course, one of the, one of the tragedies uh, among many within the minority communities right now is that a lot of that is rolling back. Right. Because, of course, uh, uh, that's where uh, many of the joblessness uh, numbers have come from first. So, Stephen, before we let you go, I, I just got to ask you, because we are thinking so much about reopening, uh, even cautiously here in the tri-state area in New York City specifically, what's the most important data to look at when it comes to reopening, It's even from a national or, or a regional perspective in your estimation? Probably the most important data to keep an eye on is uh, is the public health data, mm. because at the end of the day, uh, uh, people, will, uh, individuals will only be comfortable going back to work and being fully productive and being out as uh, active consumers again if they feel safe, yeah. uh, if they believe uh, that uh, uh, that the government, society, workplace, uh, our state and local governments in particular are paying attention to the environment in which they work and shop, uh, that personal protective equipment is available, that testing and contract, contact tracing is being done efficiently. Uh, and, of course, uh, everyone is paying attention to the latest news on uh, vaccines and therapeutics, and, and that's been a big market driver over the last month. So uh, we are paying attention to uh, what's happening in the public health area Uh, and believe that that'll be the principal driver, ultimately, for how quickly the recovery happens. Right, the ultimate oversight, right, and our expectations about it and what we kind of expect our leaders in society to take care of us. Um, Stephen, always thoughtful and really appreciate your time. Steve Skanke, Chief Economic Advisor at Keel Point, former U.S. Treasury and White House National Security Council staff member, joining us, uh, Jason, once again on the phone from... Washington, D.C. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Well, now, as we try to do most weeks, sometimes multiple times a week, mm-hmm. because we just need his insights that much, uh, let's turn to Andy Brown, Bloomberg New Economy Editorial Director. Uh, he's got a provocative column, maybe not so provocative these days, given everything and how everything is upside down. Another lost decade is coming. Andy joins us on the phone from New Hampshire. All right, break it down for us, uh, A.B. What are you seeing? Yeah, so we've, you know, the, the, the epicenter of the coronavirus has now shifted to Latin America. And uh, so the new economy, we're really focused now on what is going to be the fallout on the world's developing countries. And, you know, what we're seeing is the, the good news, if you can talk about good news in an epidemic, maybe it's best to say the, the, the less bad news is that 
the most dire predictions of economists and epidemiologists um, about the impact that this was going to have on the developing world just hasn't actually come to pass. Um, and that's particularly true in Africa, where the United Nations just a few weeks ago was talking about potentially more than a billion infections and three more than three million deaths and multiple famines of biblical proportions and, and really sort of um, creating these end-of-the-world scenarios. And that hasn't, that hasn't happened. Um, it's also, uh, I mean, right now, Africa, you know, according to Johns Hopkins University, which is, was, you know, some of the most reliable data that we have, there's only been 150,000 infections in the whole of Africa. Uh, of course, that's lowballing the, 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 the total because Africa hasn't had widespread testing. Um, but the, the, the other sort of piece of, of good news, I guess, is that, you know, it's, it's actually emerging economies that are leading the global uh, economic recovery. Um, and, and the countries that are performing best are the ones that have been most competent at, at dealing with COVID-19. And that's been, you know, uh, by and large countries in East Asia, led by China, South Korea, um, and Taiwan, um, which was, of course, an, an, an exemplar. So that's kind of on the, on the positive side, in a sense, of, of the balance. Um, you know, the, ba the, 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 the bad news is that this, this, this epidemic is going to dramatically widen global uh, inequality. You know, the rich countries of the world have been able yeah. to, you know, spend tr literally trillions of dollars on, on, on stimulus, plugging income gaps for workers, plugging revenue shortfalls for companies. And, you know, countries in Latin America and Africa simply haven't been able to do that. And to the extent that they can... Um, borrow now to um, you know to support their economies. They're having to do it at higher interest rates. So now they have this additional burden of debt, um, you know, on top of plunging currencies, on top of failing trade, um, and that's not before we even get into sort of these other issues around long-term issues of of climate change. So you know the the net net outcome. Um, is that you're going to have a much deeper uh, divide in, in, in the global economy between the haves and the have-nots, and then even between emerging economies, between those in Africa, Latin America, and then the economies of East Asia, of course, which, which are going to be, come out of this pretty well. So, net, net, right. you know, you are really knocking back development in large parts of the world by many, many years. Well, this is, you know, Andy, what I love about your story, it's like if you were scientists and you were going looking at a cell and you keep going through, you know, smaller and smaller layers. And I feel like that's what you do in terms of the virus's impact on the world, right? Differences among developed nations, then you have developed versus developing. And then the more you break it down, there's differences even in the developing markets. You, though, go as far to say another lost decade is coming for emerging markets. How, how do you anticipate that that might play out then? Well, if you if you look, you know, we had a, a Bloomberg story um, today by our Bloomberg's economics team. They're talking about the Brazilian economy shrinking by six percent this year. Um, you know, other some of the other major economies in Latin America, Peru, Mexico, are predicted to shrink by similar amounts. So you could say, actually, right off the bat, we've got a decade of 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 lost growth there. Mm. Um, but for many of these countries, you know, they now they don't have the resources to invest in social infrastructure, in in education, in healthcare, 
everybody's talking about you know the the the, uh, the the necessity of investing in the digital economy coming out of this that this is going to be right. um, you know an, an 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 area where all countries are going to have to well, um, you know pour their resources well you know Latin America Africa just doesn't have the don't the countries they don't have the capacity to do that. So hence this, you know, there there are some people like uh, Dambisa Moyo. She was on our new economy uh, conversation series the other day. She says what we need for Africa is a Marshall Plan. They're not going to be able to dig their way out of this on their own. They need they need massive infusions of capital, um, you know, right. from from the United States, from Europe, just as just as you had this U.S. effort to rebuild uh, Europe after the World War II. It's another thoughtful piece, and you also do wonder about, you know, where we need China maybe in all of this. They have right. spent so much money on the emerging areas um, before in totally. terms of tapping resources, but then also providing uh, money for those areas. So you do wonder um, where they should, uh, what their role should be going forward. Another provocative piece and thoughtful piece by Andy Brown, editorial director. Andy, thank you, uh, of Bloomberg New Economy, on the phone from New Hampshire. All right, you're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Masser along with Jason Kelly, and we're just about 12 minutes away from the closing bell on this Monday, and we continue to see, as you just heard from Charlie Pellet, that rally uh, continuing. In fact, we're just hovering pretty much uh, off our highs of the session, but nonetheless, stocks continuing to grind higher. Amazing. It is time. I know. I know. <laughs> I mean, I still, I don't know. Well, I feel like disconnect between broader world and the markets, but I also feel like it's indicative of who is in the financial markets, who's investing versus kind of the rest of the world and, and some of what uh, ails us and certainly a large part of our society, Jason. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's get to the drive to the close today with Mike Chalker. He is Portfolio Manager, Senior Analyst at LM Capital Group, looking after about $4 billion. Joining us on the phone from San Diego. All right. So, Mike, we're scratching our heads as, as we continue to at this market that grinds higher. You just heard uh, Charlie Pellet break down the numbers and, and Carol uh, reference them as well. What do you make of this market? What do you see in the market and how do you account for what we see in, quote unquote, the real world and the real economy? Hey, good afternoon, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, it really is uh, a bit of a conundrum for some. Um, for others, the, ample, the uh, answer is fairly simple, and that would be the Federal Reserve. Uh, you know, it is really the market maker uh, ever since it announced uh, the action it wanted to take back in March. And our feeling at the firm is that, and the fixed income side at least, and, and it's been echoing over to the equity side, you're having a lot of market participants try to front run um, the Fed's participation. And so if you feel like you can get in uh, the securities and the risk that you're comfortable taking, uh, and then maybe later sell those at a higher price when the Fed steps into the market, which you know, it's only just beginning to do so with its uh, primary and secondary credit facilities, then that's a great trade. Uh, you know, then we'll continue to maybe step, take a step back after that point and really see if the economy can now mimic the V recovery that the markets have had. Right. Yeah, that, that's interesting. And I do feel like um, a million questions here. First of all, let me ask you, since it is a Fed week, we have a Fed meeting, do you expect the Fed to continue to be really supportive? Or do you think, based on that Friday's jobs report last Friday, that they're going to maybe start to say, well, you know, we can start to back off? I mean, we've seen them back off in terms of asset purchases. But I do wonder if you think they will say more on that front. I don't think that they will. Um, it was interesting to see them back off the asset purchases. I was a little bit premature um, mm -hmm. in our view from them. I thought they would be a little bit more supportive. The jobs number on Friday, of course, was a rocket number. 
Um, it surprised almost everyone on the street, including us. Uh, but it does make a little bit of sense as we're beginning to reopen the economy. Uh, all these restaurants, all these small businesses that did have to lay off workers, well, now they're in a rush, right? They're in a rush to bring back as much um, employees as they need to sufficiently stay open. Now the question is, did they get them all in one foul swoop? Did they just quickly bring everybody back? And this is, you know, maybe 30 or 40 percent of their employee rate that they had, the retention that they had before we went to COVID. And then the question remains for the rest of the economic recovery, well, how many jobs are going to be permanently lost? Because right. there will be a significant number. There will be four, five, six, seven million, who knows, uh, number of jobs that will not return. So how do you put money to work uh, at a time like this? And are there certain sectors that feel a, a little bit better as you synthesize all of that? And presumably, uh, Mike, as you look at a, a reopening economy, we're obviously laser focused on it here on the East Coast and especially being in and around New York City and sort of what that looks like and, and how much that will influence not just investor sentiment, but ultimately earnings and economic behavior. Right. So we've done a couple things. Um, obviously, you know, there's been an incredible rotation, um, an incredible spread compression on the credit side. And if for a minute we can just step back and talk about where rates are right now, right? So the, the, the belly and the early part of the curve, or excuse me, the front part of the curve, two and three year paper, being at, you know, low to mid 20 basis points doesn't really entice anybody on the Treasury side. You're not going to have anybody continue to think, well, let's go ahead and buy treasuries because we can pick up 26 basis points. Um, the risk there, the risk reward isn't, isn't worth it. So a lot of what we've been doing is taking some of that allocation, moving it to a credit name uh, that we like. And particularly, as you've seen in the last week or last two weeks, the incredible steepening that's gone on in the treasury curve. I think that's exactly the momentum and the move that the Fed wants to see. Mm -hmm. um, whether they'll say it or admit it or not, I believe there is some type of yield curve control that is happening, um, probably inadvertently, but it's working out to their favor. They want rates low, but they want a steeper curve. Um, and so for us, a great place to be is in the finance and banking sector, which we've been overweight for a good part of a year, if not more. I mean, we're continuing to add to those names. Uh, some people that have been chasing the, uh, the beaten down names like energies and cruises and airlines, we think that will end up rotating out and just further the trade moving into finance and banks as well. Hey, Mike, before we go, I, I am curious, though, when you look at some of the current events that are going on in our world, whether it's the virus, whether it's the last couple of weeks, Minneapolis, and, you know, once again, we're talking about the gaps in our society and the people who are being left behind once again. And I do wonder how you look at it with an investment eye. And I do wonder if you think about maybe some of the changes that need to come about Um and, and, and how investors specifically can really vote with where they put their investment dollars? Well, it's really tough. I mean, that's a really tough question. It's a really tough topic. Um, you know, I was watching a segment today about how ESG has really become part of the forefront um, in a lot of investors' minds, and particularly what's, what's happened in the past couple of days. Um, you know, I'd really like to see that, that sort of expand, right, into not just environmental, social, and governance, but, you know, particularly into the social aspect, you get a lot of people that are really concerned about their environmental exposure and, you know, not being in the coal producers and such. But, you know, I think what's gone on in the past week or so really brings the, to the forefront more of the social and the social injustices. And as a money manager, it's really tough to see 
what we think of, you know, the top tier percent uh, of the people that make up our economy continue to succeed as asset prices rise, knowing that there is a large group of people that aren't able to participate in this because of their socioeconomic factors, and they're kind of left behind. Um, so I think really that further it furthers the divide in our country. And, and like I said, as a manager, it is sort of a tough thing to watch. But of course, you know, our, our, our duty is to make our clients money. But um, I really I really do feel that there is some some more that needs to be done um, on the ESG side and frankly, on the policy side. But you know, that's a that's a topic that we we don't handle. We only kind of try to keep watching. <laughs> All right. Well, good to catch up with you. Thanks for the insights. Mike Tarker is Portfolio Manager and Senior Analyst for LM Capital Group on the phone from San Diego. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Bloomberg Global News.